be fun to see what a year brings, won't it? What the next children's choir at Christmas will look like. Right. Hey, we're going to be in Ruth 3 this afternoon. If you have a Bible with you, turn there, or you can follow along in your bulletin where the same text is printed. And we have the culmination, nearly, of a love story. We've been going through the book of Ruth during Advent, which is kind of a prequel to the Christmas story. And I'm going to do what everyone hopes she'll do with a love story, which is take it apart and preach a sermon on it, and uh, even more romantically, uh, turn it into a theology lesson. So you're welcome, Um, because it's not just a love story, it's also a story about risk. Um, It's a, it's a, there's a lot in this story where you you listen and you just think, are they supposed to be doing that? Um, Is that, is that the right thing here or not? It comes at the time of the judges in the Old Testament, if you if that makes any sense to you. And it was a pretty raggedy time, like morally and spiritually. If you're, if you're ever having uh, dull devotions and not getting much out of reading the Bible, just go read Judges for a while. Uh, it'll at least hold your interest because crazy things happen there. This story is in that time. And it's a story, the, the romance between Boaz and Ruth uh, in this chapter is also a story about risk. Uh, people who are willing to take big chances to try to make a play, make something happen in their lives. And their courage to do that comes out of a confidence that they have in God. And so the point I want us to look at in the story that we look at tonight is how trusting in God who's in control of the universe uh, frees you up to take huge risks in your life. And the reason we're going to talk about that is I think that uh, Christians are inexplicably and very commonly timid in the way we approach life when we have every reason not to be. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please come and speak to us. Uh, We pray that you would open our minds to you and our hearts to you, that you would overcome whatever bias and prejudice we have that makes it hard for us to listen to you. And give us hope in believing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you've not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. 
And now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So lie down until the morning. And so she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He said, bring out the garment you're wearing and hold it out. And so she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what kind of story is this? Uh, Is this a story of uh, destiny, of God orchestrating the events of their lives uh, together to make things work out just like he wants, leading up to the birth of their son, leading up to the birth of their grandson, David, the king, leading up to their uh, later, um, not ancestor, but what's the, down the line is called? Descendant. descendant. Thank you. Better descendant, uh, Jesus Christ. All right. Is, is this a story of orchestration like the Truman Show? Do you remember that movie, the Jim Carrey movie, where he was uh, on a movie set his whole life, TV set, but he didn't know it? Uh, where everything about uh, his life was scripted, all of the relationships he had were scripted. Uh, only he was not in on that secret. His freedom, though, was almost all apparent or ostensible freedom. He never really was free. It was a story of determination from above by an unseen hand. Is that the kind of story this is? Um, story where, even though it says things like in the last chapter that Ruth happened, Uh, to find the field of Boaz when she went to glean, that this really is a story of God orchestrating things to make his plan work out? Or is it a story of human initiative, uh, of human freedom and enterprise, uh, kind of a uh, pre-doping Lance Armstrong story, right? The triumph of the human spirit over tremendous obstacles. And as someone who out of great creativity and resilience and strength, has decided to make lemonade out of life's lemons uh, and assert himself and his ability to make things happen. Maybe it's that kind of story. You've got Naomi scheming like she schemes. You know, hmm, maybe you go to the threshing floor. That that will work. And it's it's kind of a dodgy scheme at best. I'm pretty sure that most English translators of the Bible try to sweeten with euphemism, things that are said, but I don't know what, lift, you know, lifting up the skirts and covering the feet and all that, it's kind of, who knows? It's an iffy scheme, let's just say. I don't know what's going on there. Um, but she says, get dolled up, go to the threshing floor, and uh, basically propose. And, uh, and Ruth, the indomitable Ruth, whose life has been terrible, musters up her courage, rolls the dice and says, I'll do it. And she goes and she... Uh, sneaks in there and does what she was told to do, and then she makes this proposal, which is really a pretty beautiful proposal, right? You know, Boaz had said to her those kind words, you've come and taken refuge under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And then she comes and says, now you spread your wings over me, and uh, 
that was a good proposal. You know, that's Christmas commercial jewelry kind of stuff right there. And, uh, and then Boaz is also bold in this. Here's as messy a romantic arrangement as you can imagine. It's a foreigner. She's a widow. It's a disgraced family in some ways. You know, this is someone who works for him. Uh, it's risky to his reputation. Uh, who knows what people are going to think, what they're going to say, and all that. And he takes the chance anyway. He says, basically, his response is, I am not throwing away my shot now <laughs> if you're really willing to have me. And so he says, yes, yes. There's a nearer redeemer. That's the stuff of the next chapter. But he's pretty confident that he's in the catbird seat on this and he's going to be able to win out. So what kind of story is it? Is this a story of God's uh, uh, plan that he orchestrates in people's lives without them even really knowing what's going on? Or is this a story of people uh, grasping life by the horns and making things happen? Enterprise or destiny? Which is it? Well... It's a classic theological question, as I promised earlier. Um, God's sovereign control of the world or human responsibility and freedom, which is the real story about why things happen the way they do. Charles Simeon, great uh, British preacher that you've probably never heard of, um, said it this way. He said, the truth is not in either extreme, nor is the truth in the middle, but the truth is in both extremes. Uh, the story of our lives, the story of their lives, the story of the world is a story of destiny, of God controlling sovereignly the world that he has made. But it's also a story of human uh, choosing creativity, rationality, and enterprise. Uh, both of these things are absolutely asserted as true in the scripture. And without one or the other, you really can't explain what's going on in your life or in human history. Uh, these things go together like two sides of a coin, we say, which is a is a simple way to explain something that is really beyond our grasp. It's mysterious to us how uh, destiny and enterprise relate, how God's control and human freedom relate. We don't ever really understand that well. If someone has a scheme by which they comprehend that completely, don't listen to them because they only think they have it figured out. Um, It's a mystery for us. We just kind of have to embrace. The problem is... In your philosophical conversations, it's pretty easy to leave it at that. Like, okay, uh, it's a mystery. I can, I can live with that. I can live with my questions. Um, but in real life, it's more confusing because you have to make choices based on what you think is going on in your life. Because if it, you're always kind of torn as a Christian believer between, am I being too passive and just saying I'm depending on God when I should be actually doing something? Or, then, or am I being manipulative when I'm doing stuff and I think maybe I should just be depending on God instead? And so being passive and manipulative is hard to figure out. You know, when you're, when you're crossing lines in those areas in your life, you want to trust God, you want to uh, take the responsible action you should take, and it's hard to know, um, hard to sort out. Anybody that kind of leans too hard on one end or the other too is suspect, right? You kind of recoil against somebody who's, Everything is destiny. There is nothing but uh, uh, fate, karma, God's sovereignty in control over here. Or you recall from someone else who just says, you know, everything is enterprise. You know, if someone says everything is just, um, this is where enterprise is isn't it? on this side. Anyone who says it's just enterprise, that the story of our lives has nothing to do with God. Um, it's just uh, what we make happen in our lives, human initiative, um, falls over towards what... Uh, we call in 
normal society, humanism, and in religious circles, we call it Pelagianism, which basically says I'm in charge, I'm running things, and God is not in any control of my life at all. Um, and we recoil against someone who says that because it seems overreaching. Like when Lance Armstrong, before he got caught, would talk about his life, I would always be just saying, would you just please once say thank you to God at some point for what he's done for you? Because if anybody should be thankful, you should be thankful, but he just wouldn't. You know, it's just me, 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 me. And you pull back from that because you think you're, you're downplaying God's plan and God's gifts in your life if you do that. And when you do that, when you, when you discount God's control and His plan, you wind up being proud. Right? You boast. I did it my way. You know, this, is, this is what I have accomplished. When, when religious people start doing this, churches get very rigidly moralistic and judgmental of others. Right? You know, I'm doing it right, and I see what everyone else is doing wrong. It kind of leans into that. Or uh, you're prone to manipulation to try to prop up this fiction of your own self-reliance. I think this is probably the story of Lance Armstrong's doping, right? Is that I've got, this, I've got this story to maintain about my life and my cancer recovery and my Tour de France victories, and um, I've got to keep the plate spinning, man. I can't let it come crashing down. And the temptations, I'm sure, were pretty strong for him to do doping. Uh, if you give yourself all the credit, you tend to be very morally pretentious uh, and very defensive if anyone... Uh, questions at all your great morality or damns you with faint praise or anything like that, you're super defensive and ready if you're only giving yourself credit for what's happening in your life. If you succeed, you're unbearably proud. If you fail, you're unbearably depressed. If you discount God's plan. So you look at this, you look at Naomi and you wonder if maybe she's manipulative here. If maybe she's, you know, she's used to making her life work with or without God. You know, the whole let's move to Moab where there's food just in case God doesn't provide for us story in her life. That's still part of who she is. And you wonder with her scheme here if she's not trying to force the issue. I don't know if God's going to provide for me and for Ruth or not. Let's make it happen. And so she makes me a little nervous with that. Um, Boaz doesn't as much, right? He seems to be taking a pretty uh, reasonable risk. But you wonder if... Naomi is discounting God's, the kindness of God's plan in her life and his willingness to be good to her. But, you know, as you recoil from kind of the Lance Armstrong hubris, you also recoil from people who are passive because they just say everything is just God's plan, right? Um, well, God's in control. What are you going to do? You know, that's a, you get versions of that that aren't religious, like sort of a brain chemistry determinism. Everything about you, all your decisions, all of your tastes, all your loves are just a matter of brain chemistry reducing uh, you to a determinism that way. Religiously, it's ideas of karma or fate or hyper-Calvinism, if you've ever heard that term. Um, but we recoil against that idea, too, that, that we're just puppets, that, that uh, human freedom is really just illusory. We recoil from that. Like, when you watch The Truman Show, don't you want him to escape? Why? Is he likely to have a better life after he escapes than before? I mean, he's got a pretty sweet life. If you like seaside Florida, you know. Um, everything's going pretty well for him. Nothing really totally tragic ever happens to him. Why do you want him to escape? Because that's not what a human being is, right? A human being is more than that, than just uh, an actor in a script. 
The, human, the image of God in human beings is creative and rational and relational and is made for more than just to be a, a puppet in a show. We, we want Truman to escape. Um, if you downplay human responsibility over here and just say everything is a matter of what God decides to do, everything's a matter of fate, in other words, um, it tends to make you passive. Have you uh, ever had um, sort of uh, nominally Islamic friends who would use the phrase inashallah all the time? It uh, means if God wills, but what it really means is, eh, maybe if I feel like it. Are you going to come to my house tomorrow? Yeah, inashallah. Like, I mean, I mean, yes, if God wills, but what it really means is, yeah, if I don't think of something better to do. Right? It's, but it's a passivity that is excused by uh, a supposed dependence on God. I, uh, other people do it in different ways. Um, that's a kind of passivity that creates 30-year-old adolescence in our churches, right? Um, people who don't grow up and make decisions and embrace the responsibilities of life very early. Um, I mean, let me ask you, is it more spiritual when you've got a decision to make to passively wait on God or to actively make a decision? That's supposed to be a hard question. Um, but just waiting passively is rarely the answer in the Christian life. Um, If you think everything um, depends on God in a way that undermines human responsibility, uh, one thing, it's going to make you a passive prayer as well. When you go to pray, you'll pray passively. You've got a lot of examples of pretty robust, pleading, arguing prayers with God in the Bible that don't sound very much like many of our prayers, my observation. Remember when Moses was praying, God was angry with the Jewish people in the, in the wilderness and was ready to destroy them and start over with Moses? And Moses said, he said, look, kill me and save them. Which is a weird kind of deal-making with God and is very dramatic and very unlike the kind of prayers that we usually pray. When Abraham's nephew, uh, Lot, was in danger of being killed and the cities on the plain being destroyed under God's judgment, Abraham prayed, crazy prayer to God. If there are 50 righteous people there, will you spare it? Well, how about 40? How about 30? I mean, you ever pray like that? Bargaining God down in, in a prayer? Which, no, that's disrespectful, right? That doesn't, that doesn't properly take into account the control of God and His sovereignty in the world. It's, it's irreverent to pray that way. But it's not. It's invited. It's modeled for us in the Bible. But we don't usually pray that way. John Knox prayed, Give me Scotland or I die. And I think he was a dramatic person generally. But even still, that's the kind of prayer that it makes sense for someone who has confidence in a God like that to pray. And somehow we've, we've made that feel irreverent, uh, I think, by downplaying human initiative, human responsibility a little bit. It, it affects us devotionally where we think, I would love to be uh, really deep spiritually and closely connected to Jesus and walking closely with Him and have a great relationship with Him. And I hope someday He just zaps me with that <laughs> rather than me trying to pursue that through any kind of discipline, any kind of uh, uh, structure in my uh, life with Him and reading the Bible and praying. Like, no, that wouldn't be authentic, man, if I had to structure it and put it on a calendar. I just want it to, you know, happen like love. And it doesn't work that way, right? 
Is risk avoidance a good ethic for a Christian? Isn't it better to err on the side of caution? What in the Bible would ever lead you to think that it's better to err on the side of caution? To err on the side of caution, not to put too fine a point on it, is to err. Right? To err. Why would we be cautious? Why would that be a Christian ethic? If God is sovereign and loves us and has set us free in His world where we cannot escape His love or turn His back on us, why would we be timid? Dr. Who uh, was frustrated with people who were uh, always reading guidebooks about time travel but never would go anywhere uh, because they were timid. And he said, you know, time travel is like visiting Paris. He says, you've got to throw yourself in. You've got to eat the food and use the wrong verbs and get charged double and wind up kissing complete strangers. He said, or is that just me? <laughs> but he says, you know, stop asking questions and go on and do it. And you can imagine Jesus speaking in a similar tone to us. Like, what do you... Why did timidity become the mark of my people? God is completely in control. You are a human being in His image uh, with uh, full responsibility. So make a play. I mean, what have you been given? You've been given that, the, the notion that Jesus has come to your rescue right? and uh, to create this tremendous sense of confidence that He's going to take care of you um, and He's set you free in His world to pursue His agenda. So why is that not making us bold and free? Uh, why does that make us timid? I mean, this is what Ruth and Naomi somewhat and Boaz knew is that you know, their lives are a story of being pursued by God's mercy. They've seen this play out enough now that they realize all that's gone on in their lives is good. It's God coming after them in mercy. And everything's been given to them unearned. And so they really are in a situation where they have nothing to prove and nothing to lose in their lives. They don't have to prove anything um, to God because they've been loved even though they didn't deserve it. They don't have to be really super tidy with their morality and making sure that they you know, follow the Christian dating rules exactly to a T to make sure that the, the, uh, um, the engagement was appropriate. You know, Boaz isn't going to her dad to ask permission. And, you know, they're, they're, there's, it's very untidy, but that's okay. Uh, they don't have anything to prove by being tidy or careful. And they don't have anything to lose because both of them have the feeling in their lives that, look, I'm, my life is ragged in a lot of ways, but I'm under the, I'm under the wings of Yahweh now and under His care. And I don't have anything to lose anymore, so I can make a play. You know? Ultimately, what am I going to lose if the God of the universe that's controlling the world because He loves me so much has got me in His hands and under His wings? What have I got to lose? I'm not recommending this movie because I don't recommend movies. And if you say I'm recommending a movie, I deny it. But uh, Samuel L. Jackson was awesome in Shaft. And uh, at one point... He lost his badge because of, uh, you know, rough and rowdy behavior. And, uh, but he was still pursuing a case that he was working on, and he uh, was accosting an informant at one point. And the guy looks at him, and he's terrified of him anyway. And he says, Shaft, you're not even a cop anymore. And uh, Shaft says, do you think that makes me less dangerous or more dangerous? Which <laughs> is a pretty great line. Coming under the wings of Yahweh has not made Ruth less dangerous, right? 
she's not afraid anymore. She's bold to make a play. She's crazy bold. Um, think about what she does. What she, she goes to the threshing floor. Apparently you don't do that. If you have to wait till after dark and leave before anyone can make out who you are, you know, it's sketch, right? Don't go to the threshing floor. She's going to go um, make the riskiest play of her life with a guy who's, um, I don't know if he's drunk, but he's not far from it, right? He's somewhere north of the gladdened heart and south of crying about your daddy. But, you know, his heart is merry, our translators say. And some people get really nice when they drink like that. And some people don't. <laughs> and so this is risk for her. That's who she's going to speak to. He's her boss. I think we call this an asymmetrical power relationship now. Her employer, he's older than she is, enough for him to note it in his response. He's a native Israelite with a good reputation as a godly person. And what she's doing uh, puts him in a... In a odd spot. He might be furious that she would come and risk his reputation. Oh, I heard that there were a woman visiting Boaz at the threshing floor last night. And so that's a big chance. He, he could be furious with her. Um, he could take advantage of her. She's exceedingly vulnerable in this situation. But she is uh, not less dangerous having come under the wings of Yahweh uh, she's got nothing to prove, nothing to lose, and she makes a play. And it's not morally tidy, but it is full of faith. Do you believe in that category? Not morally tidy, but full of faith? You can explain that to your children at home. <laughs> Thanks for singing. The, uh, but really, um, a lot of times in our lives, that's where we are. So she's, she's dangerous now. How much more dangerous should we be? I mean, Ruth knows something about coming under the wings of Yahweh, but we know so much more than her. We know her grandson, King David. We know her grandson's descendant, uh, Jesus. So our confidence in God's control of the world, we get to watch how he orchestrates these plans all through the Old Testament leading up to his son being born. Uh, we have way more to go on about God's control of our lives. We also have way more to go on in terms of God's love for us and His willingness to pursue us in mercy. Right? Um, because we've seen Jesus. She just had a general hope based on not much knowledge. We have a lot of hope. Uh, we've come under the wings of Jesus who says, sort of taunting things to us like, uh, two sparrows are sold for a penny and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's care. The hairs on your head are numbered. Uh, not one falls from your head apart from your father's will. These, this is how you taunt timid people, right? Timid people who need uh, to lose their unreasonable timidity. Look, the hairs of your head are numbered. I'm taking care of you. You don't have to be so scared to make a play in your life. Right? You don't have to be so scared of risk. You don't have to be so cautious. Right? George Whitfield, another English preacher I like, said, uh, Every man is immortal until his work on earth is done probably been quoted to a lot of mothers by sons who just bought dirt bikes you know but um, it's not the only thing to say that's true about life in the world but it's not false is it every man's immortal until his work on earth is done um, 
that should give you a little bit of boldness. Do you know William Carey? Uh, I'm going with Englishmen with my examples tonight. Uh, he was the founder of the modern missionary movement in the 1800s, went to India as a missionary when nobody did that. Nobody had heard of that before. Nobody in his life said, I think that's a great idea. I think it's really God's will. They all said, are you crazy? That's completely dangerous and futile. Why would you do that? But he goes, goes to India, expecting never to come back. He gets there. His son dies of dysentery, as you might imagine. His wife has a nervous breakdown within a couple of years. And five years in, they don't have a single convert. This is a great plan. You've ruined your family. You've ruined your life by going to India to be a missionary. One guy converts five years in. His name was Krishna Pal. And when Kerry uh, wrote about him, you know what he said? He said he was only one Indian, but hundreds of thousands were coming after him. Because there's a man who said God is in control of the world and is orchestrating his plan. And I am safe. I have nothing to prove or lose. And I can risk And I have confidence that he's going to do what he's promised to do. I don't know when or how, but he's the first of hundreds of thousands. Confidence in God's plan and confidence in God's grace is a pretty dynamite combination for making somebody bold in their life. The God who controls the world has taken care of me and loves me like anything. I can make a play without worrying too much about being scared. So what what are you so wobbly about with your decisions, may I assume? Um, if you're young, you worry, what am I going to major in? Uh, what job am I going to take? Who am I going to marry? Then you quit worrying about God's will, decisions in your life, because nothing else really you know, important happens after that. Uh, right. But you, can, I, can I dare to give away a scary amount of money for his kingdom? Can I dare to have a conversation with somebody that I need to have, but I'm scared of it because it's risky? You face all kind of timidity questions in your life. And if a Christian grows in their faith over years and years in life and becomes more timid rather than more bold because of it, you're doing it wrong. Old Christians should be scary to us. You know, young elders should be grabbing the reins saying, whoa, 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 <laughs> to the old elders because the old elders aren't scared anymore. That's never been the case in a church I've seen before, but it could be. There's no reason for us to be timid. We're safe under the wings of our Father. He loves us. We can make a play. Ruth and Boaz and Naomi took risks. They schemed. They didn't worry about being tidy because they were under the wings of a sovereign God. So throw yourself in. Eat the food. Use the wrong verbs. Get charged double. Kiss a complete stranger. After all, God is sovereign. Let's pray.